the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I can hardly believe it's four o'clock. It comes at the exact same time every day. And yet three days out of five. I'm surprised when four o'clock rolls around. Uh, by the way, James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. And last Friday, um, you graciously came into the studio and you gave me the geriatric font on this screen to my left. Now I can't log on. So maybe you can come in at some point and help me with that. Needless to say, if it weren't for Clark, um, you can blame him. This whole thing probably would just fall apart. Uh, Today we're going to talk with Ross Marchand. He's um, a townhall.com columnist. He's also the director of policy for the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. And he's going to join me to talk about the speaker's um, uh, effort to introduce legislation for the federal government to set uh, prices for medications. We'll get into that. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jonathan Scruggs. He serves as senior counsel and director of the Center for Conscience Initiatives with the Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about a now-resolved case by the Arizona Supreme Court, a decision in favor of artists with the Brush and Nib Studio who are willing to serve any customer but not to produce art that communicates any message. We'll talk with him about that important case. We'll also talk with Chris Thurman. Dr. Thurman has released the 30th anniversary edition of his classic, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life. Again, he'll join us in the five o'clock hour. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. The New York Times suddenly made a major revision to its story late Sunday concerning a resurfaced allegation of sexual assault by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh hours after virtually all 2020 Democratic presidential candidates had cited the original article as a reason to impeach Kavanaugh. Uh, the update included the significant detail that several friends of the alleged victim said she did not recall the supposed sexual assault in question at all. So the person to whom this assault was supposed to have take, uh, been uh, the victim of uh, had no recollection of any event at all. The Times also stated for the first time that the alleged victim refused to be interviewed and has made no comment about the episode. They went with the first story hours before. Apparently um, changing their mind and by the way had that information when the original story was um, uh, published. The only firsthand statement concerning this supposed attack in the original piece came from a Clinton-connected lawyer who claimed to have witnessed it, or at least heard about it. The Times Revision says, editor's note, an earlier version of this article, which was adapted from a forthcoming book, did not include one element of the book's account regarding an assertion by a Yale classmate that friends of Brett Kavanaugh pushed his, well, I won't go into the details. Uh, the book reports that the female student declined to be interviewed, and friends say that she does not recall the incident. That information had been added to the article now why they didn't include that in the original at the time they knew those details and chose not to publish it the update came only after the federalist molly hemingway who reviewed an advanced copy of the book first flagged the omission on twitter 
And the United Auto Workers went on a nationwide strike against General Motors on Sunday night after contract talks broke off on Sunday. It's the first strike against GM in 12 years. Talks will resume Monday morning and did. Union officials say both sides are far apart in the talks, while GM says it has made significant offers. UAW represents workers at 33 manufacturing sites and 22 parts warehouses across the country. President Trump on Sunday suggested U.S. investigators had reason to believe uh, they knew who launched a crippling attack against a key Saudi oil facility and vowed that America was locked and loaded, depending on verification. While he did not specify in his tweet who he believed was responsible for Sunday's drone attack, U.S. investigators previously pointed the finger at Iran. For its part, Iran has declined the allegation, or rather denied. Earlier Sunday, the president authorized the use of emergency oil reserves in Texas and other states after Audi, after Saudi oil proceed, uh, processing facilities were attacked, uh, sparking fears of a strike in the oil prices uh, when uh, markets reopen on Monday. And Beto O'Rourke on Sunday launched an, an expletive fuel defense of his call to ban assault-style weapons and impose mandatory buybacks of AR-15s and AK-47s while also pushing back at critics, including fellow 2020 Democrat Pete Buttigieg. During last Thursday's presidential debate, the former Texas congressman said, expletive, yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AR AK-47, and we're not going to allow it to be used against your fellow Americans anymore. Well, it's any more would only apply if they had been used in the prosecution of a crime. But nonetheless, Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, appeared on CNN's State of the Union on Sunday and agreed with Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat out of Delaware, saying the clip of O'Rourke's statement about AR-15s and AK-47s will be played for years at Second Amendment rallies with organizations that try to scare people by saying Democrats are coming for your guns, proving that at least some Democrats are coming for your guns. Buttigieg went on to say when even this president and even Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are at least pretending to be open to reforms. We know that we have a moment on our hand. Let's make the most of it and get these things done. End quote. O'Rourke pushed back, tweeting, when candidates say at least Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are pretending to be interested, expletive, that is not enough. Neither is poll testing your message. Gun violence is a life or death issue, and we have to represent the bold ideas of people all over the country. End quote. The back and forth continues. Lori Laughlin may have second thoughts about pleading not guilty in the college admissions scandal following Felicity Huffman's 14-day sentence. A source close to Laughlin told People that People magazine that the former Fuller House star was aware of Felicity's sentence and uh, is processing what that means for her. Huffman, 56, was sentenced to 14 days behind bars after she pled guilty to conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud in May. Purdue Pharma, the drug manufacturer accused of triggering the nation's epidemic of opioid addiction through its sale of the profitable but highly addictive painkiller OxyContin, filed for bankruptcy on Sunday. The Chapter 11 filing is expected to lead to the ultimate demise of a company that sold a fraction of the opioid prescriptions in the United States, but nonetheless is most closely identified with the epidemic because of its pioneering role in the sale of narcotic pain pills. President Donald Trump talked on the phone with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader, rather Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, on Sunday morning as pressure mounted for Congress to act on gun control. In a statement released Sunday afternoon, Schumer and Pelosi said they told the president that any gun control package that did not include the background check legislation passed earlier this year by the House would not get the job done. They promised Trump a historic signing ceremony at the Rose Garden if he endorsed the legislation and had Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell act on the legislation 
as well. A federal appeals court on Friday breathed new life into a lawsuit that claims the financial relationship between President Trump's properties and foreign officials violates the Constitution, ruling that a lower court had erred in dismissing the suit. By a two-to-one vote, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit rejected the lower court's 2017 ruling, which had uh, dismissed the case brought by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. The suit alleges that foreign government's patronage of Trump's businesses violates the Constitution's emoluments clause, which prohibits federal officials from receiving benefits from foreign governments without congressional consent. Former NFL star uh, Edwan Kaufman was arrested Wednesday on suspicion of vandalizing his own restaurants. Police allege that Kaufman scrawled MAGA and racial epithets on the walls of his business, alleging that he was trying to collect on an insurance scam by staging a hate crime. And family members discovered 2,246 medically preserved fetal remains on the property of an abortion doctor, late-term abortion doctor, who passed away on the 3rd of September, according to authorities. He died at 75, reportedly performing 30,000 abortions since 1974, according to uh, the Indiana Medical Licensing Board. They had indefinitely suspended his medical license in August of 2016, according to an NBC affiliate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll talk with uh, Ross Marchand, town hall columnist and director of policy for the Taxpayer Protection Alliance. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. Well, in an effort to gain favor with the socialist wing of the Democratic Party, the Speaker of the House has introduced legislation for the federal government to set the price for medication. Ross Marchand, with, uh, who is a townhall.com columnist and director of policy for the Taxpayer Protection Alliance, suggests that this is not in our best interest and why. He joins us today to talk about uh, this legislation introduced by the Speaker and what alternatives might be a better approach to uh, reducing uh, the prices of prescription drugs. Roth, uh, Marchin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be on your show. Well, let's start by talking about what Nancy Pelosi has introduced and why, what problem she is attempting to address. Oh, well, she wants to, quote unquote, negotiate with the drug companies. But her, her weird, twisted definition of a negotiation is my way or the highway. We're going to name a price. We're the government. We're going to name a price. And if you don't like it, we are going to fine you up the wazoo until you agree. And customers lose out of that arrangement. And I think the result is that you would see a lot of life-saving medications pulled from the shelves. I think that's an, it's an important point, and you write about it in your town hall column dated today, Pelosi's plan for drug pricing is not what the doctor ordered, in which you describe for us um, the cost of bringing new drugs, new medications to the market. Can you talk a little bit about that and that 2016 Tufts Center uh, study uh, of drug development that gives us some perspective on why things at least initially cost so much? Yeah, I've been following these studies over the years, and it seems like with each passing year, the study estimates that it gets more and more expensive to produce a drug. So now, and this is an insane-sounding figure, it costs $3 billion to bring a drug to market. And a large part of that is because of really strict, harsh government regulations that make companies pass through all these hoops that are unnecessary and increase costs. So customers, they see the bill at the end of the day. These costs get passed along to customers. Now, the president back in October of 2016 um, floated a rule that uh, was also touted to fix the the high price of 
uh, of drugs. Can you describe his plan and how that compares to what Nancy Pelosi has introduced? The Trump administration said uh, back in first back in 2016 that they started developing this over the past two or three years. And they said, we are going to take drugs and take the Medicare uh, payments for drugs and tie it to an international average of basically what European countries pay for their drugs. And that's wrongheaded, too. That's a bad approach because you're saying that the European governments are doing things the right way, when in fact, competition, innovation, new drugs brought to market in Europe, I mean, they've never been lower. And if you're European, you're trying to look for anti-cholesterol medication, heart disease medication, you name it, it's almost impossible to get those drugs. Uh, So we do not want that for the United States. So in the legislation that the um, speaker has introduced, health and human service, they would negotiate on behalf of the American people um, the prices of some 250 drugs a year. Is that how the, the model would work? Right. And everyone is being left in in the dark as to which drugs are going to be selected. Are they going to be important life-saving medications Americans rely on on a daily basis? And how will the government negotiate? It seems like the government is going to take a my way or the highway approach. And I really do think everyone is going to move out from that approach. Uh, We cannot afford to go the way of Europe um, in this area of public policy. One of the things you point out in your column is that our robust economy, vibrant competition, that drug prices have declined by more than 1% in 2018, which is the largest yearly decline since 1972. 1% may seem relatively insignificant, but what does that tell us about other approaches to uh, lowering the price of, of drugs that come to market? I would just say this. We took a small step in the right direction this past year with that 1% decline, but we could do a lot better. If we focus on FDA reform and streamlining some of these crazy, really harsh regulations, we could do so much better than 1%, and we can make sure that customers don't pay an arm and a leg for their medication. One of the things you write is that um, that risk-averse FDA, their approval process doesn't take into account drugs' actual risks and rewards. Where are they flawed in the approach that they're currently taking that could be streamlined in a way that doesn't compromise the safety of users, but at the same time makes uh, these drugs more uh, affordable and approachable? Well, the devil is in the details, but long story short, the FDA is focused on a few different sort of statistical methods. And they're stuck basically in the reasoning of 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, But the best practices for making sure a drug is safe and effective, it's changed a lot over the past 20 years. And the FDA has not kept up. And I think the FDA and the bureaucrats that are hired by the FDA, they need to take a more open-minded approach uh, because millions of lives hang in the balance. You write that drug producers have relocated en masse and sold their medications um, on markets not marred by government price fixing. If the United States were to go the way of Europe, which seems to be what Nancy Pelosi is suggesting, and the the Trump administration did at least in, to some measure, what's likely to happen in terms of innovation and drugs being um, brought to the market that could address some of the challenges that people face now in terms of their medical issues? Well, if this policy sees the light of day, I mean, I really don't want to, you know, find out what happens. But I think a lot of innovation would dry up and customers would face a lot fewer choices and a lot fewer life-saving medications would come to market. How likely is this to succeed? And is this just an olive branch or is this is there a lot of uh, interest in Washington in moving something like this forward? 
I'm cautiously optimistic that people will understand the consequences of this approach and push back. Then again, it is Washington, and maybe I do not have reason to be cautiously optimistic. Um, we don't have to wait and see. We could fight the good fight. I think if everyone tries to write to the White House and tries to force their hand and get away from the sidelines and force action and push back against this disastrous proposal, uh, we could affect real change here and we could restore competition to the drug market and streamline some of these regulations. Well, Ross Marchand, I appreciate your taking the time to uh, help us better understand the issue and uh, for being with us today. Thanks. Great to be on. Thank you very much. Um, He writes that uh, countries can shrug their shoulders, force low prices on manufacturers, all but uh, guaranteeing that producers won't recoup these gargantuan investments. I think he said $3 billion. But this approach never works to the benefit of patients. Before the advent of mass price fixing, Europe used to be the global center for biomedical innovation. Fast forward a few decades and endless government tinkering and drug manufacturers have largely ditched their European operations. And of course, they've come here. Over the past 50 years, the share of new drug originating in countries such as France, Germany, the UK has plummeted from 45 percent to 20 percent. Manufacturers mostly flock to America, which provides companies across industries pricing flexibility and strong intellectual property protections. Drug producers have relocated en masse and sold their medications on markets not marred by government price fixing. Americans uh, never have uh, have to worry about shortages of popular life-saving drugs such as statins, um, ordinarily prescribed for cholesterol control. Unfortunately, Europeans cannot say the same. Nearly 40% of surveyed European pharmacists cited heart medication shortages as a significant issue in 2018. If price fixing becomes a reality, Americans could soon be caught up in that same uh, problems, those problems faced by their European counterparts. So it's an interesting prospect. And by the way, Ross Marchand writes for Town Hall. You can find uh, his column and others at townhall.com uh, for further details and to read his full article. By the way, on this day in history, 1940, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Selective Training and Service Act, now known as the Selective Service. On this day in 1940, Samuel T. Rayburn of Texas is elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. And by the way, one of the Senate office buildings is named for him. On this day in 1974, President Gerald R. Ford announces a conditional amnesty program for Vietnam War deserters and draft evaders. On this day in 1976, the Episcopal Church, at its general convention in Minneapolis, formally approves the ordination of women as priests and bishops. And finally, on this day in 1987, two dozen countries signed the Montreal Protocol. It's a treaty designed to save the Earth's ozone layer by calling on nations to reduce emissions of harmful chemicals by the year 2000. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, We're going to take a quick break uh, later in this program. In the next hour, in fact, Jonathan Scruggs will join us. We'll talk about an Arizona Supreme Court decision that says artists have the freedom to choose what they can, uh, what they do and what they don't do. We'll also talk to Chris Thurman. He's the uh, author of The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life, the 30th anniversary fully revised uh, edition is now available. We'll talk with him about that. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, the New York Times published a correction late Sunday night after leaving out exculpatory evidence in a story about Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's time as an undergraduate student at Yale University. Times reporters Robin Porgabin and Kate Kelly wrote an article in Sunday's paper drawing from their new book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, an investigation in which they outline details of an alleged event. The article left out a crucial fact that was included in the book. The alleged victim reportedly has no recollection of, in, in, uh, of the incident in question. The woman refused to discuss the incident with the authors and several of her friends said she does not recall it. Well, the Times published the correction after facing bash- backlash uh, for the omission. An earlier version of this article, which was adapted from a forthcoming book, did not include one element of the book's account regarding an assertion by a Yale classmate that friends of Brett Kavanaugh uh, did X. Um, the story now includes the line, the female student declined to be interviewed and friends say she does not recall the episode, end quote. Well, National Review's John McCormick described the Times omission as one of the worst cases of journalistic malpractice that I can recall, end quote. Porgabin and Kelly didn't immediately recall emails inquiring why they left out the exculpatory evidence from the original article. Democrats seized on the Times article to call for Kavanaugh's impeachment. Senator Kamala Harris tweeted that Kavanaugh's place on the court is an insult to the pursuit of truth and justice. He must be impeached. Last year, the Kavanaugh nomination was rammed through the Senate without a thorough examination of the allegations against him. Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote on Twitter on Sunday, confirmation is not exoneration and these newest revelations are disturbing. Like the man who appointed him, Kavanaugh should be impeached. Porgabin and Kelly also rehashed a previous accusation from Debbie Ramirez, one of Kavanaugh's former classmates at Yale, who accused him of drunkenly displaying himself in the at a party. Porgabin and Kelly's essay didn't mention that their Times colleagues reported uh, during Kavanaugh's confirmation in 2018 that Ramirez could not be certain Mr. Kavanaugh was the one who exposed himself to her. The Washington Post, by the way, passed on the thinly sourced, unproven allegation about the Supreme Court justice before the New York, New York Times published it on Sunday in a misleading article that has since been corrected. Um, so the Washington Post uh, previously declined to publish the accusations uh, revealing Sunday night um, at the time that the New York Times essentially retracted or at least amended its original story. Meanwhile, uh, President Trump accused the Democrats and members of the press of waging an influence campaign against the Supreme Court justice after the allegation. He suggested that Kavanaugh bring civil suits for libel and decried accusations without recrimination in that case. In other news, the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services said a Supreme Court victory regarding asylum applicants will result in significant changes to the immigration process in a short time. Speaking on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday, Ken Cuccinelli, he touched on what the September 11th ruling will mean for illegal immigrants who are reaching the United States-Mexico border in mass and lodging asylum claims. So the impact on the ground is already being felt, he told um, host Margaret Brennan. We will do it in the places where we have the logistics in place uh, fastest first and then move uh, move it all the way across the border. But this will be measured in days, not weeks. The nation's highest court ruled that the Trump administration can enforce its rules of barring asylum applicants from entering the country if they first did not seek protected status in a country they passed through on their way to the United States. The decision means the U.S. government could soon begin denying thousands of asylum applicants who reached the southern border, giving relief to the country's immigration court system. The Supreme Court decision followed a back and forth between the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and a judge appointed by President Obama, who twice imposed a nationwide injunction on the Trump administration's asylum rule. 
Uh, Cuccinelli said most of the people coming in that are claiming asylum on the southern border or coming in illegally already. The circumstances that we face on our southern border are still crisis circumstance, and we have 335,000 asylum case backlog, which I take very seriously, and it is um, creeped up. It should have been crept up. But while um, I have been here, despite us throwing more and more resources at trying to drive it down, he went on to say uh, there are legitimate asylum claims in there. Some of them have been waiting for two years, and we take very seriously the need to get to those people. Unfortunately, this system is clogged up with a lot of fraudulent claims. He also noted that Customs and Border Protection, a separate agency within the Department of Homeland Security, has deployed resources into the Bahamas, something he says he never recalls the agency doing before Hurricane Dorian devastated the islands. We rushed resources in. The Coast Guard, who were downright heroic in there, and Border Patrol assets were moved in there as well to make hundreds um, of saves uh, in that case. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> In other news, the Justice Department in new court filings sought to block congressional Democrats' bid for a um, secret grand jury material from the Robert Mueller investigation by citing the confusion inside the caucus over whether or not they're pursuing an impeachment investigation. In the Friday court filing, the department argued that the House Judiciary Committee clearly is not. The committee's own description of its investigation makes clear that it's uh, too far removed from any potential judicial proceedings to qualify. After muddled messages on the matter, committee Democrats last week argued that they're leading an impeachment investigation as the panel took its first formal vote, establishing the procedures for those proceedings and hearings. The lawmakers in a related case in court are seeking the release of secret grand jury material from Mueller's investigation. A small percentage of the report remains redacted as grand jury material has to remain secret according to the federal rules of criminal procedure with narrow exceptions. But in a recent court filing, the committee claimed their investigation of Trump's possible wrongdoing falls under the exception for judicial proceedings, including impeachment proceedings. But the Department of Justice countered that what Democrats are doing is hardly such an investigation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Meanwhile, a day after the House Judiciary Committee took its biggest step yet toward impeachment last week, moderate Democratic uh, Representative Anthony Brindisi, he voiced his frustration directly to Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The background freshman told uh, Pelosi and other leaders at a closed-door meeting that he and other centrists fear that talk of impeachment, uh, impeaching President Trump, was threatening to swamp the Democratic agenda, according to multiple people in that room. It's very frustrating to me, he said, someone coming from a district that was one of the districts that helped get us into the majority, having so much focus on things like impeachment or other issues that are divisive. Brindisi said in an interview, adding that he's been talking to fellow swing district freshmen who have similar concerns with the fall agenda. We should be focusing on the kitchen table issues. In the same meeting, another moderate in the room, Representative Stephanie Murphy, a Democrat from Florida, pointed to alarming polling from the Democrats' campaign arm, which showed that voters think the party is prioritizing impeachment over other issues, according to an internal summary uh, that was obtained by Politico. The speaker responded by saying she was keenly aware of their concerns and reiterated that the caucus does not have 218 votes for impeachment. And she stressed that only the full House has the power to launch proceedings, a statement that seems to conflict with the Judiciary Committee's position that it is currently engaged in an impeachment investigation. 
Well, the comments by Brindisi and Murphy at the, are the latest to uh, sign the mounting frustration among the Democratic caucus, small but mighty moderate wing. Since returning from the summer break, centrist Democrats have been venting to each other and directly to Pelosi, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler about what they fear the public sees as a fixation on impeachment that could undermine their reelection prospects in 2020. Multiple lawmakers and aides are saying Pelosi's efforts to tamp down talk of impeachment expressed in private and and public so far haven't appeased the caucus centrist wing. And the United Auto Workers members uh, began their strike on Sunday night after the union and General Motors failed to reach a new labor agreement ahead of Sunday's midnight deadline. UAW represented uh, janitors were the first to go on strike early Sunday with 49,200 workers planning to join them. UAW helped rebuild General Motors when they were near extinction. Now they're uh, they've reached record level profits, the union said in a statement. If UG or rather if GM refuses to give even an inch to help hardworking UAW members and their families, then we'll see them on the picket lines tonight, which, of course, they did. Roughly 850 janitors who are employed by um, Aramark, uh, but represented by UAW, walked off the job at eight GM plants in Michigan and Ohio after the two sides failed to come to terms on a contract extension following 18 months of negotiations. Major concerns for the janitors range from caps on health insurance and wages to vacation time and 401k plans, according to the union. We have um, uh, contingency plans in place to cover any potential disruptions, GM said in response to the janitor strike. The Detroit Free Press reported that union-represented GM workers reluctantly crossed picket lines on Sunday set up by the UAW after the union told its auto workers to report for work on Sunday in spite of the Aramark strike. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. A reminder, in the second hour, we'll talk with Dr. Chris Thurman. He has re-released his classic, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life. It's the 30th anniversary edition. We'll speak with him about that later in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Judge Christopher Height of San Francisco Superior Court has dismissed one and a half of the 15 felony criminal charges brought against Sandra Merritt by California Attorney General Xavier Bacara for her undercover journalism work with uh, which exposed Planned Parenthood's trade in baby body parts. The statute of limitations has run out on these dismissed charges, so they cannot be brought again. The undercover videos, most of which were recorded at the National Abortion Federation, or NAF, in 2014 and 2015 abortion convention and trade shows, exposed Planned Parenthood's illegal involvement in harvesting and selling aborted baby body parts to companies such as Stimic Express. The recordings capture, capture rather Planned Parenthood's executives haggling over the prices of baby body parts, picking through uh, bloodied arms and legs of aborted babies in a pie tray and discussing how to alter abortion methods to obtain better baby parts for sale. Merritt and Merritt's co-defendant, David Delayden, the founder of the Center for Medical Progress, are the first undercover journalist to be criminally prosecuted in the history of the state. As Liberty Council defends Merritt, no other Another citizen journalist or journalism organization has ever been charged with a crime for undercover recordings made in public interest. Uh, during the two-week preliminary criminal hearing, Judge Height dismissed the charge against Doe 
uh, eight, an abortion professor at a taxpayer-funded public university who never showed up to testify last week. The other charge concerned two alleged events with Doe 9, a Planned Parenthood doctor. However, half of that charge was dismissed since the attorney general's office never played the video in court of the alleged incident in April of 2014. Matt Staver, who is the founder of Liberty Council, which is, again, representing um, uh, her, uh, representing one of the uh, clients, Merritt, uh, said each day of these hearings, it reveals that this case is frivolous and should be dismissed immediately. The state of California has abused the legal process by prosecuting Sandra Merritt when she did nothing wrong. The entire case should be dismissed. Uh, We're following this case uh, very closely and we'll keep you updated on what happens next. Meanwhile, family members discovered 2,246 medically preserved fetal remains on the property of an abortion doctor who passed away on September 3rd, according to authorities. An attorney representing former Dr. Ulrich George Klopfer's family told the Will County, Illinois coroner's office they discovered what appeared to be fetal remains and asked the coroner to properly remove them, the Will County Sheriff's Office said in a press release. Will County Sheriff's detectives, crime scene investigators, and representatives from the Will County Coroner's Office arrived at an address in unincorporated Will County, the Sheriff's Office said. Personnel were directed to an area of the property where 2,246 medically preserved fetal remains were located. The Will County Coroner's Office took possession of those remains. Authorities are investigating the situation. Clover previously ran abortion clinics in Fort Wayne, Gary, and South Bend, Indiana. There is no evidence that any medical procedures were conducted at the property. The sheriff's office continues. Clover, who died at 75, reportedly performed 30,000 abortions since 1974. The Indiana Medical Licensing Board indefinitely suspended his medical license in August of 2016. Um, well, let me put it this way. The attorney general's office and the right to lifers are in bed together, Clover said at the time uh, that it happened. How is that? Well, the Indiana Attorney General's office filed in a January 2016 complaint saying Clover had failed to provide qualified people to monitor sedated patients who were obtaining abortions. Women get pregnant. Men don't. We need to respect women making a decision that they think is best in their lives, he told the Indiana Medical Licensing Board in 2016. I'm not here to dictate to anybody. I'm not here to judge anybody, end quote. Well, Clover did not give pain medication to all the women he performed abortions on. The publication reported the doctor allegedly gave pain medication to women under 16 and to women who could pay him extra. And why on earth an individual, an abortionist or not, would keep the remains of 2,246 medically preserved fetal remains from abortions he had performed is a mystery to virtually everyone involved in the case. Well, for many of the national security teams that monitor threats on the United States, the apparent drone strike on Saturday on the heart of Saudi Arabia's oil production facilities was the realization of their worst fears. Houthi rebels uh, battling Saudi Arabia in Yemen took responsibility for the attack. They say they used drones, though U.S. officials have said Iran was behind the attack and that at least some cruise missiles were uh, uh, were used. The attack underscored fears raised by U.S. security officials and experts in terrorism about the rapid evolution of technologies that could have allowed inexpensive devices to pierce Saudi defenses in a way that a traditional air force could not, flying long distances to drop potent bombs that apparently uh, set vast portions of the Saudi petroleum infrastructure on fire. 
Well, the bottom line is that we are likely to see many more of these sorts of attacks, and in particular, coordinated attacks on multiple targets are likely, possibly in tandem with the cyber attack component. That's a quote from an independent risk consultant based in Washington in an email, Melina Rodman. Well, the risk is hardly new, though, for law enforcement and Homeland Security officials. FBI Director Christopher Wray in October warned a Senate committee that civilian drones pose a steadily escalating threat. The devices are likely to be used by terrorists, criminal groups or drug cartels to carry out attacks here in the United States. Dozens of incidents in recent years have hinted at the risks from the mysterious drone flying in London's Gatwick Airport in December that disrupted operations for days to recent assassination attempts used, uh, using the devices in Yemen and in Venezuela. But even as the threat is well documented and somewhat understood, the countermeasures necessary to prevent or repel these attacks are much murkier, they tell us. There's currently no requirement on how to track the millions of civilian drones flying the U.S. skies. The Federal Aviation Administration has spent the past two years crafting regulations requiring small civilian drones to install radio identification technology after the FBI and Department of Homeland Security objected to widening public use of the devices. A proposed regulation is expected later this year but may not be completed for a year or more. Meanwhile, the FAA has cautioned airports about a acquiring anti-drone technology. The agency is, um, in recent years rather, has tested radars and other systems designed to identify drone intruders, but they all had significant blind spots. The military has more options to combat drones, but some technologies like jamming radio signals or firing weapons aren't permitted in civilian environments. And as the Saudi Arabia attacks appear to demonstrate, even a nation with a sophisticated military and a large budget for defense is still vulnerable. An aviation management professor at Metropolitan State University who also works as a security consultant says the implications of Saturday's attacks are enormous. He says they not only highlight the growing technological capability of rebel groups, but could also serve as inspiration for homegrown terrorists in the U.S. who may be motivated by the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. New spin? Well, flying a drone that puts a new spin on things uh, enables attacks that previously weren't possible to be conducted with a level of stealth and detachment from the attacker. Few details about the attack have emerged. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, he blamed Iran, which is aligned with the Houthi rebels, and said there was no evidence it originated in Yemen. Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Abbas um, Musavi rejected Pompeo's assertion, as one would expect, calling them blind and fruitless accusations. Two administration officials who asked not to be identified discussing internal deliberations told reporters on Sunday the cruise missiles may have also been used in the attack. The officials didn't rule out that armed drones were used as well, even as they rejected the Houthi claim that they mounted the attacks using the pilotless aircraft. The range from Yemen was far beyond the distance of anything the Houthis have ever done, the officials said. Well, Price and others said that they doubted that the small quadcopters that have proliferated and can be bought online or in electronic stores were used in the Saudi attacks. Those battery-powered devices have limited range and can't carry more than a pound or so of explosives. However, many nations, including Israel and Iran, have demonstrated the ability to build sophisticated flying devices that are relatively small and stealthy, while also capable of carrying powerful explosive devices. A 2018 United Nations report found that Iran had helped the Houthis build a drone known as uh, Kasef-1, which was based on the Iranian-built Abalbi 
NXT, which means nothing to most of us. In any event, modern computer chips, global positioning, satellite tracking are making uh, drones more capable all the time, they say. And they fear cheaper, um, uh, they're far cheaper, rather, to build than the multi-million dollar Reaper drones used by the U.S. military. Uh, Price said he uh, raises the subject of drone security at the seminars he regularly conducts at airports around the U.S., and the answer is always the same. I literally ask them, what are you doing about drones? And they always say, well, nothing. They just simply groan. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Um, when we return, we'll talk with Jonathan Scruggs about a case in Arizona regarding two artists and what they can be compelled to do, or more importantly, what they cannot be compelled to do. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Chris Thurman. We're going to talk about his 30th anniversary edition of the classic, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life. He'll be joining us uh, in our next segment. Well, the state Supreme Court in Arizona has just ruled in favor of artists with the Brush and Nib Studio and in support of the First Amendment freedoms of the Joanna Duca and Brianna Kosky. Well, the court ruled that the Phoenix Ordinance unconstitutionally compelled speech of these business owners. It's a question that keeps coming up, but in this case, it sounds like they got it right. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jonathan Scruggs. He serves as Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Conscience Initiatives with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, the case against um, this business, Brush and Nib Studio. Uh, tell us what Joanna and Brianna, what they do and why the estate uh, was opposed to a decision they made about what they declined to do. Uh, sure. Well, Joanna is a calligrapher and Brianna is an artist, and they met and they decided they wanted to live out their dream of starting a business together, starting an art studio. Uh, so they got that process started, uh, but they looked around and saw people all across the country being sued uh, for declining to celebrate same-sex weddings. Uh, and then they realized that, hey, there's a law in Phoenix where they wanted to start their business that is a similar law. Um, and this law poses some, some severe fines, uh, up to six months in jail and $2,500 fines per day that someone doesn't comply so we're faced with that really type of stiff penalty. Uh, they did what any reasonable person would do. They wouldn't risk violating the law. They went to court and said, hey, court, what are my rights? Uh, what freedoms do I have? And that case went all the way to the Arizona Supreme Court. And today the court ruled, as you noted, that these two artists have the freedom to speak the, the messages they want to speak, that they get to choose, not the government. I think it's important to point out that the pair of them do not decline any client. What they uh, refused to do was to communicate a particular message that conflicts with their core values. Is that a, a fair way of putting it? No, absolutely. They serve all people, uh, including those in the LGBT community. There's countless pieces of artwork that they would create uh, for for people in the LGBT community. But their principle is one they apply across the board, uh, no matter who asks. There's some messages they don't convey for anybody or they don't celebrate for anyone. You know, they wouldn't create an art piece promoting racism or an artwork, uh, you know, criticizing uh, someone of a particular faith. Um, and they apply that same principle to the topic of marriage because that's what they believe in. And that's – and the Arizona Supreme Court acknowledged that and protected that, and that's good news. Uh, it's good news for all people in Arizona, for all speakers, 
Because if the government can crush Joanne and Brianna because of their particular views, it really can crush uh, anybody. Yeah, for for their particular views. Now, it seems that this question in this context, whether you're talking about a florist or a baker, or in this case, artist and calligrapher, um, whether or not they can be compelled to convey messages that conflict with their core values is a question that just keeps coming up. Uh, it seems like the Arizona Supreme Court got it right. But this ultimately this question ultimately will have to be resolved in the Supreme Court uh, for these cases to to end. Is that your view on you know what we're seeing is repeatedly um, artists and artisans uh, being pressured to engage in activities that conflict with their values? I think that's so. I think the U.S. Supreme Court does need to step in. Uh, I do think you see a growing consensus, a correct consensus. Uh, the decision today, uh, a few weeks ago, a decision from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals protecting two filmmakers. Uh, in Kentucky, uh, courts have already ruled in favor of a promotional print shop that declined to create uh, T-shirts promoting a message they disagreed with. So you do see that consensus growing. Uh, there are a few outliers, uh, for sure. Obviously, the state of Washington uh, compelling Baronel Stutzman to force there. But I think the U.S. Supreme Court will need to step in and say this is what the law is, and it's a good principle that people can choose which messages they convey. Now, in the case of Baronel Stutzman, if I recall, the request has been made for the Supreme Court to hear the case, but they have not yet decided to do so. Is that the status at this point? That's right. We have asked, filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court to ask the Supreme Court to review that decision and to establish that nationwide precedent. And we will not hear back probably at least for a few months to see what the U.S. Supreme Court does. But this case just makes, I think, the U.S. Supreme Court's choices easier, right? Mm-hmm. When you see these cases coming up, you see you know, government trying to compel uh, people to write words, uh, people to create films. Uh, all of this is going way too far, uh, and it's really sad when the governments are taking this extreme step. Now, in the case of Brush and Nib, the two artisans, uh, they were facing a possible jail time as well as uh, large fines. Yeah, yeah, six months in jail and $2,500 in fines, as I noted before, per day. I mean, that's not just total. That's per day they violate the law. Uh, so that obviously can rack up uh, and could, you know, these are two young women who are just trying to live out their faith in their business. I mean, they're setting out on a path, I think, as anyone is starting a business, it's scary. It makes it even more scary when the mm-hmm. government's trying to throw you in jail. Um, but again, the Arizona Supreme Court spoke loudly today saying the principles of free speech and principles of religious liberty, you know, they apply across the board to to everybody. So what happens for them next and for future artisans in Arizona who may choose to decline communicating certain messages? How how broadly is this uh, opinion applied? The language in the opinion applies broadly. It applies to any speaker, really, that decline to create a message that they disagree with. Uh, you know, so it could apply to filmmakers or, as I, as I know, artists or printers. Now, all of this is core free speech, and the principle set forth in today's ruling should protect that. Now, as you mentioned, the lower court decisions, uh, many of them are making the Supreme Court's uh, job a bit easier should they take up a case in which they address these issues. How heavily does the Supreme Court rely on what lower courts across the country are saying and doing on issues like this in determining 
um, how they're going to rule in similar case uh, should they make the decision that, yes, we will hear Baronell's case, for example? Well, I think the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, usually looks to two factors. One, how important the issue is. And this issue is important regardless of what the lower courts are doing. So that by itself should should justify the Supreme Court taking review. But another factor they look at is, look, are there courts coming out with conflicting decisions? And I think that's what you see. You see, like, as I noted, this uh, Washington Supreme Court. Um, but then you have this flood of recent opinions today in Brushnev's studio. I mentioned the filmmaker case, the cases in Kentucky that are coming out the other way. And that should just be a glaring red light uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court to want to step in and provide assurance for all artists and all speakers uh, all across the country. And again, this should apply not just to one particular view on marriage. We shouldn't be forcing LGBT artists to convey messages they disagree with or atheist singers to sing at church services. These principles transcend particular topics and go to the core uh, of the First Amendment. Well, we appreciate the work that Alliance Defending Freedom uh, is doing and has done to protect the rights of individuals uh, to exercise their faith in the uh, in the broader public square. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, Jonathan Scruggs, uh, he serves as senior counsel and director of the Center for Conscience Initiatives with Alliance Defending Freedom on the Arizona Supreme Court case. Uh, the decision uh, made just uh, days ago with regard to these artists with Brush and Nib Studio. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Dr. Chris Thurman. 30 years ago, he wrote a book that has now become a classic, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life. He's a psychologist, and as such, this is a book to help uh, people um, evaluate the things that they have embraced as true, to weigh them against the truth, and then how do you move from one place to the other? He'll be joining me in just a few moments right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, in a world like ours that's veering dangerously off course comes a classic work that unmasks the lies that you and I unwittingly believe. Well, in this completely revised and updated 30th anniversary edition of The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life, psychologist Dr. Chris Thurman guides readers through the lies we believe about ourselves, relationships, life, men and women, and most importantly, lies we believe about God. He then discusses the 12 essential truths for emotional health and the truth about God, the ultimate source of truth. Well, releasing simultaneously is The Lies We Believe workbook, and it helps readers identify problem areas and mid-course corrections needed and how we view ourselves and our world. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman is a psychologist, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, a charter member of the American Association of Christian Counselors. Dr. Thurman worked at the uh, Minerith Meyer Clinic for six years before entering private practice more than 25 years ago. Uh, he and his family live in Austin, Texas, and I am just delighted to celebrate the 30th anniversary edition of this classic, The Lies We Believe, and to welcome the good doctor to the program here today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Thurman. So much for having me. Uh, let me just ask you a, a bit about 30 years ago when this book was first released. At that time, you were addressing a, a set of lies that were common uh, to the human soul, if you will, at that time. Has it changed much since then uh, in terms of writing about the things that we believe that are false today as compared to 30 years ago? You know, Georgina, I don't think fundamentally that the lies 
uh, are all that different uh, today. I do think we have come to understand how to help people renew their minds at a more uh, effective level. So I think that has changed. But, you know, the lies that we believe as human beings are pretty stable over time, and we're just uh, constantly having to battle with them and, and try to move in the direction of truth. This is a common thread, then, that human nature, we tend to embrace lies about ourselves and others. I suppose that begs the press, the question, then, where do these lies that we believe come from? Do we originate these lies in our own hearts? Are they suggested to us by our common em- enemy? Where do these lies that we believe come from? Well, I think they come from a a number of sources, so it's not just one source, but uh, my own view is that we all enter the world with a broken thinker, Mm -hmm. so I think when we get here as little ones, we're already predisposed to not view reality accurately, so that's kind of working against us from the start. And then, you know, not to psychobabble it or, or lay it off on parents, but how we're raised, you know, if we're raised lovingly, uh, kindly, graciously, then we tend to think one way. And if we're raised in a more uh, hurtful, uh, wounding kind of way, then we develop tapes in our minds uh, that are different. Certainly, if we grow up in the church, we can actually be taught some things from the pulpit that uh, helpfully shape our thinking, but sometimes we get taught theological error. Uh, another factor is the world that we live in. The world is full of, you know, it's just overrun with thousands and thousands of different viewpoints. So what we're taught out of psychology and new age and all that is a factor for why we think like we do. And then finally, the, the enemy, the perpetrator, the father of lies. We, we are under attack every day from the deceiver, and he is delighted to get us to believe things that are not true. Mm. Now, it is very difficult for us to let go of a lie that we have embraced as truth when we have come to believe that this is true perhaps about me. Um, is it because there is a grain of truth in it? Is it because uh, we just tend to believe what we have have uh, embraced early on? Why is it so difficult for us to let go of things that we are uh, told are, are not true? Well, I think when we initially are told something that isn't true or treated in a way that isn't commensurate with being um, image bearers who are made in the image of God, uh, we end up internalizing false beliefs about ourselves and the world, but we think they're true. So out of the gate, we're buying into something that we believe to be true, even if later on we discover that it wasn't, it's going to be a tough switch to make. You know, if I've been thinking a certain way for 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's going to be really hard to admit that I, I haven't been seeing it correctly. It's going to be hard to even buy into the idea that there's a different way of looking at something that would uh, be more accurate and serve me better. So I think we just get entrenched. We're, we're in a form of mental bondage, if you will, to faulty views of reality, but we think that they're correct. Yeah. Now, what is the truth model that you write about, and why is it important for us to understand uh, when we're reading uh, the book? Well, the truth model was my way of trying to take the biblical notion as a man thinketh, as women and men thinketh, so are they, and put it into model form. 
So basically the, the first T is the trigger event. The R is the ruined thoughts that come into play for how we interpret the event. The U is the unhealthy reaction that we typically have first uh, when we're kind of on autopilot. The second T is truthful thoughts. We're told whatever is lovely, true, pure, and worthwhile to think on these things. And then the H is healthy reaction, which may not show up immediately. It may be that we have to work the model pretty hard for weeks and months to start to see the results come in. But sooner or later, if we will persevere, we're going to end up having healthier reactions to the trigger events that we run into. Well, in this 30th anniversary, um, revised and updated version of The Lies We Believe, I'm happy to reassure our listeners that the emphasis really is on renewing our minds and transforming our lives and, and giving us a pattern so that we can move in the right direction to do uh, just that. In revising and updating the book, what because it seemed like such a thoroughly uh, competent book in the beginning, what kinds of things did you need to update in order to make it uh, more relevant, perhaps, in the 21st century than when it was first released? Yeah, well, I appreciate the compliment, Georgine. And uh, I think uh, basically as the anniversary approached, I knew that I had learned quite a bit over the 30 years. I knew I had been reading and thinking and working with enough clients to have, a, I hope, a deeper understanding of renewing the mind. So I felt like, you know, this really is a book that, however well-received it was initially, it really can be improved. And so there are 12 brand-new chapters in the book and every chapter that made the cut from the original has been completely revamped. And there's the content, I hope, is so much better. The writing style, I hope, is a little bit more uh, 21st century. And uh, so I was just very, very thankful that I had a chance to uh, go in and completely remodel the book. In what ways are the lies that we believe damaging to not only ourselves, but to others and our understanding of and our sense of who God is? Well, uh, they are damaging to ourselves. So if we walk around thinking that we're worthless, for example, we're going to walk around damaging ourselves with more depression, anxiety, self-condemnation. But if you're believing things that are not true, it's going to damage your relationships with others because you won't treat them properly. If, if, for example, you're taking what people do personally, if you fall into that mental trap, which all of us do, you're not going to react well to somebody being rude or impolite or even betraying you or doing something more egregious. Uh, Certainly, if we don't see God for who he is, then we're going to either run from God out of, you know, fear that he's mean and hateful and out to get us, or we're going to uh, just think of him in too much of a uh, selfish way, as if he's here just to give us everything we want. Uh, so these lies, you know, it's, it's back to the issue of garbage in, garbage out. If you believe things that are not true, you're going to pay for it across all the dimensions of life. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. So stay with us. We're talking with Dr. Chris Thurman. His book, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life, has been completely revised and updated with the 30th anniversary edition. It is certainly worth reading and working through. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments, so do please stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with uh, psychologist, best-selling author, and popular speaker, Dr. Chris Thurman. His uh, marvelous book, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life, has been revised and updated with this 30th anniversary edition. You will find it more helpful than perhaps you did first. And, of course, a whole new generation, generations, have access to the book now as well. Um, we want to uh, continue this conversation, and I want to encourage you. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. It's currently available, and uh, this is a great way to deal with uh, some of the issues that uh, plague, well, essentially all of us. Let's talk about what mental strongholds are, and well, first of all, what they are, and how and why we need to overcome them. Well, you know, most of the time, Georgine, I think we talk about behavioral strongholds, you know, that we get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, behavioral habits, and that's certainly valid. It's important to talk about strongholds in our behavior where we're having trouble stopping a behavior that's wrong or uh, breaking free from it. But in this book, the focus is on uh, you can get into a mental stronghold just as much as a behavioral one. And therefore, if you're like me, you can walk around the planet spending your whole life in bondage to faulty belief. And for me, that one example has been perfectionism. Mm. You know, I've struggled with perfectionism my whole life. I think I came into the world fairly wired that way anyways. But uh, that's a, a mental stronghold for me is the idea that you have to be perfect. And if you're not, it's horrible and you need to beat yourself up. So we, we are, I think, supposed to not only tear down behavioral strongholds, but toxic mental strongholds. Are there differences between the may, the way men and women uh, embrace lies about themselves? Well, I think we share in common so much more than we don't. So across all the faulty beliefs, uh, I think, you know, it's common unto men and women both to think in these faulty, unbiblical ways. But I will say that uh, after 40 years of private practice, I have, I think, picked up on some of the nuanced ways that men and women tend to think in terms of gender-related misbeliefs. Uh, So I do think there are some differences, but I wrote those two chapters with great fear and trembling, I've got to tell you, because uh, I did not want to stereotype. Mm -hmm. I did not want to play into harming men and women by trotting out beliefs that were more stereotypically ascribed to men and women. I wanted it to be fairly accurate. Now, before we move forward, I want to just mention some of the lies that you uh, write about. I um, I must have everyone's love and approval. My worth is determined by how I perform. Others should accept me just the way I am. To get along, everyone needs to think, feel, and act the same way. Um, God's love has to be earned, or um, you can have it all. You shouldn't have to wait for what you want. Um, Another is my main job in life is to make everyone happy. It's not okay to speak my mind. Um, Another lie is um, my good intentions ought to satisfy everyone. These are some of the very common and sadly to say very familiar thoughts that we have and embrace and accept as truth um, that that are not. Now, let's talk about the way the book is structured, because as we read perhaps one of these lies that we have embraced as our own, how do we, first of all, identify it in ourselves and then walk toward truth that helps to transform us and to renew our mind? Well, part of the way I wrote the book was to 
if if people got anything else from it by just reading it, they were going to be more aware of what their faulty beliefs are. So it's written in such a way that you will minimally come out of the book with, you know, I didn't even think that was a faulty way of thinking, but if if Chris is right, uh, it is. Um, and then the same thing about the section of the truths that we must believe. Uh, that, to me, if you'll just read that, you'll have a better sense of what the core truths are for emotional health. But the reason I felt led to write a workbook was I really wanted to drive all this home in a deeper manner. And I knew that people needed a workbook to where they're given assignments. And so I have people do self-assessments in each chapter. I have them do writing assignments. And then I have them do basically behavioral change assignments so that God can really work on transforming their minds and helping them live uh, a life in a healthier manner. Mm. What's, what is life like when a, a lie has been embraced, one comes to the truth, the mind has been renewed? What, what might one expect life to be like then? I, I ask the question because when you're comfortable um, in a lie, uh, truth might seem so ethereal and far off that one can't imagine life any different. What is that freedom like? Well, that's the right word, is what it feels like is freedom. Mm. Uh, I, I believe that is one of the main markers that you've come out of something, is that you are metaphorically lighter on your mental feet, and you are not so weighed down. Because lies are just like a 5,000-pound weight. And I'm reminded of that verse about it was for freedom that Christ came to set us free. And I think the enemy, via lies, wants us in bondage, and that's because it, it really is like pushing a boulder uphill. And once you come out of a lie, you'll start to be lighter. You'll start to be freer. And the other wonderful benefit is that you go from rather toxic emotions to emotions like joy, peace, contentment, and so on. So you have, you have the enjoyable emotions come back online, and that alone is just an incredible reward for working on renewing your mind. In The Lies We Believe, the 30th anniversary edition, you uh, write about four lies that are always in play when human beings are destructive to themselves and each other. What are these four lies? Well, if I'm remembering the uh, (laughs) reference, uh, I think uh, a core package of lies has to do with shame. So when I'm working with clients, I'm always on the lookout for shame-related thinking. And one lie related to shame is that I'm worthless, that I have no worth. A second is that I'm unworthy of love, that I'm fundamentally not worthy of love just given who I am. A third is that if there is a rupture in a relationship with another person, it has to be my fault. It can't have been co-created, so it's all on me. And the fourth is that it's not okay to be a human being and make mistakes. A human being and make mistakes. We all make them. What we make of the outcome of those mistakes, I think, makes all the difference in the world. How is it that we come to the notion that as a human being, it's not all right to make a mistake since we are prone from the very beginning to do little else? Well, again, not to psychobabble things, but um, we don't experience down here on earth anything close to unconditional love. So most of the time we are treated on the basis of whether or not our behavior is correct or right or good or if it's not. 
So I think we internalize a sense of it's not okay to make mistakes because people are going to withdraw love or they're going to treat me badly. So I better not make any mistakes because I sure don't want to damage how people are treating me. So I think that's why if a kid can be raised in an environment where their mistakes are not rubbed in their face, but they are simply helped graciously to correct them, then I I think they are a little bit more likely to uh, grow up in a healthier way, uh, feel a little bit less um, conditionally worthwhile, and not be on the performance trap their whole lives. Mm -hmm. Which is what the culture certainly tells us. What advice do you have for someone listening who's having a hard time discovering and believing uh, the truth that you highlight throughout the book and we find throughout Scripture? Well, I would want to encourage them. Um, I would want to say I have compassion for you. Uh, To me, my heart breaks when I think about how all of us are walking around in this toxic mental stew of false beliefs that are costing us the abundant life. Uh, I would want to encourage people, please don't grow weary. This is doable. You have to have a fighter's spirit. You know, you have to not throw in the towel. But this, you know, the mind can be renewed. If we can think a bad, false thought and pay for it, we can think a good, right thought and benefit from it. Well, Dr. Thurman, I so appreciate the time that you have um, given to this program today, but most importantly, that you would take the time to revise and update your 30th uh, anniversary edition of The Lies We Believe. I think it is still relevant today, and I think people will find it as helpful now as they did when it was originally published, and I want to encourage our listeners to avail themselves of this uh, great resource. Thank you for talking with us. Georgine, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson and is currently available, and you'll want to check out the completely revised and updated edition, uh, the 30th anniversary, The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind, and Transform Your Life. If you want to know how to do that, what's the process, this book will walk you through it. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Dr. David Duell. He's the author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure, a great opportunity to consider those among us who are less physically able but have a significant contribution to make to the body of Christ. We'll talk with David Duell about that tomorrow. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Sharon Hode Miller. She's the author of Nice. I mean, we all want to be nice, but the subtitle, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Sometimes doing the right things means we're not going to be quite liked as much as we'd like. On Thursday, Tom Cole will be my guest, the former, I should say, retired judge. Uh, Cole is the co-founder of Paid in Full. We're going to get an update on how this ministry is moving forward. And I I tell you, it's really exciting to see where they are and where it's going. So we'll uh, give him an opportunity to update us all on Thursday. So that's our lineup for, at least in part, for the remainder of this week. Andrew Pollock is the father of uh, Parkland shooting victim Meadow Pollock. He became an outspoken advocate for school safety since the Parkland shooting where his daughter lost her life. And he's now written a new book detailing his own investigation into the events that led to the massacre. It is a must read. And I'm telling you, some of the details that he outlines there are absolutely breathtaking. 
Well, and in an interview uh, that took place over the weekend, he said, I wanted to look into it. I wanted to honor my daughter to see what happened and how it could happen that I put my daughter in a school in a nice neighborhood, and then I'd never um, uh, going to see her again. I wanted to know the facts. I didn't just listen to mainstream media. I didn't jump in on the bandwagon, and I found out that there are was a multitude of failures and policies that led up to my daughter getting murdered that the mainstream media didn't want to cover. Well, his book is titled Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. And he discusses his views on gun control, why he blames Democratic policies for his daughter's murder and precautions that parents can take to ensure the safety of their children. Now, we argue that new gun control laws are an effective or rather an ineffective solution to the school shooting epidemic in part. Because current laws are not being enforced. For example, the Parkland shooter had a violent record, but he wasn't arrested and therefore he was able to obtain a weapon legally. He followed the law. To me, gun control uh, wouldn't have um, uh, been uh, effective if they had arrested him for punching his mother's teeth out and got a background. He explains Democrats put these policies in place that don't um, that don't believe in holding kids accountable or arresting them while they're juveniles. So if they don't arrest them and they don't get a background, then they're able to purchase weapons legally and a background check is useless. In an interview with Fox and Friends on Monday, he said that um, banning guns is not the solution. And he encouraged people to look at the underlying causes for these shootings. They're not addressing mental health or arresting these people when they make threats. Those are the real issues, he went on to explain. Responding to a recent video featuring 2020 Democratic candidates promoting tighter gun control as a safety precaution in schools, he said it made him ill. Again, quoting Mr. Pollack. My daughter paid the ultimate sacrifice because of those Democratic policies, and I've been hurt by the Democrats more than anybody in this country, and I hold them responsible, end quote. Well, he met with President Trump five times, he explained, and applauded the president's initiative of a federal school safety commission to investigate what steps need to be taken to ensure safety in schools across the country. In his new book, he said he wanted to create a guide for parents to spot warning signs of potential shooters and to explain that Meadows' death was avoidable. The book is like a manual or a guide for parents and grandparents to read it and actually look at what happened to uh, in Parkland rather, and compare it. These policies are throughout the whole country. Um, uncovering all of this, Mr. Pollock said, it did a lot for me so other parents... Uh, now can learn from it. And that's what brought me to this book. The book started as just an investigation, but there was so many uh, jaw-dropping failures that I had to educate other parents. Well, discussing the book, uh, he, uh, uh, the host of the program, dared viewers to read the book without a box of tissue, calling it stunning and raw. Mr. Pollock is just getting started, he explained. He's uh, committed to educating parents across the country on being alert and responsive to potential dangers surrounding their children. So no parent has to experience the pain and grief that continues to haunt him more than a year later. Every time that there's a mass shooting, he explained, I think about these victims like the ones in Walmart or the ones in Virginia at the building where these animals are coming through and they're shooting. And I picture my daughter being a victim. So he sees himself as being victimized over and over again as a consequence of these other events. It is a stunning book that goes through the details of this shooter uh, that had uh, been farmed from one school to another whose record did not follow him, that permitted him um, because of what he suggests was a, a lack of diligence, permitted him to legally acquire a firearm despite a record that should have uh, been 
flag all along the way. Why Meadow Died is the title of the book. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Dr. Uh, David Duell. He's the author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. So I hope you will join us. By the way, if you didn't hear our conversation earlier in the program with Chris Thurman or my conversation with uh, Ross Marchin with townhall.com on the suggestion that, for example, the federal government set the price for prices for medication or my conversation with Jonathan Scruggs, who serves uh, with the Alliance Defending Freedom. We talked about the First Amendment and an Arizona Supreme Court decision in favor of artists. Uh, decision to decline providing certain services that communicate particular messages. You can go to our website at kpdq.com and look for the Georgine Rice Show podcast for that program and others, those conversations. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.